Good afternoon. I'm Cliff Lynch, the director of CNI, and this is our CNI Conversations for uh, May 23rd, 2012. Today we've got um, three conferences, or actually, in my case, um, uh, clusters of conferences that uh, we want to talk about and try and put in perspective. It's been a very busy week both for myself and for our associate director, Joan Lippincott, who's here with me and you'll be hearing from her in a few minutes. Um, I want to start my report today and my comments with um, a discussion of a pair of conferences that were held uh, last week on May 16th and 17th. On May 16th, there was an invitational meeting hosted at Harvard that looked at issues around um, scholarly contribution um, as captured in uh, particularly scientific journal articles, but we did have some considerable discussion um, uh, going beyond that in various directions, which I'll get to in a minute. Um, that meeting was followed by an ORCID update. Um, ORCID is the um, author ID, uh, more specifically it stands for Open Researcher and Contributor ID, um, that we've talked about before that seems to be, um, uh, at least right now, as far as I can tell, the leading prospect for um, assigning author IDs, particularly in the um, scientific sphere, to uh, allow um, appropriate disambiguation and clustering of uh, journal articles. Um, the ORCID uh, meeting um, was uh, really very much of an update um, and they've achieved a number of milestones. They've brought aboard an executive director, Lori Hawk, who um, uh, has joined them, um, and also, importantly, a, um, a real permanent uh, technical director, Laura Paglione. Um, Laura, of course, is coming to replace um, Jeff Builder, who had been um, on loan from the Crossref Initiative uh, for the last few months um, and had done um, an enormous amount of the definitional work on the technical architecture and uh, implementation strategy for ORCID. Uh, the ORCID folks are still aiming for a deployment um, uh, at least on a trial basis uh, this fall. Um, so that sounds promising. There still continue to be a lot of issues about exactly how ORCID is going to interconnect with campus-based initiatives and um, those discussions uh, continue. The conference at Harvard was really quite interesting because if you um, kind of step back from the details, what's really going on here is a conversation about what metadata we want to attach to um, journal articles, uh, particularly scientific journal articles, who uses that metadata and for what. And it's a recognition, I think, that the 
part of what the publishing process does is to codify this metadata to put it in normalized forms that can be captured and aggregated and computed upon um, and that actually uh, this metadata feeds a range of processes. So um, for example one development um, which is actually being implemented by Crossref and you can find information on this at the Crossref website which I had um, not uh, heard about before, although apparently um, it was announced a couple of weeks ago, is something called Fundref. Um, what Fundref is doing is it is setting up some um, standardized um, uh, reporting for funding sources uh, that underwrite published scholarly research. Um, we hear again and again and again from various uh, federal and private funders that um, they'd really like to be able to do better tracking of the impact that um, their funding has in terms of publications. And it's been very difficult to get that data. Um, you often will find it, but it, it varies in format, it varies in specificity, it's often buried in acknowledgments and not really picked up in bibliographic databases. Um, and the idea here is to put this in, put it in in a standard form, and um, pick it up as part of the Crossref metadata. Um, very interesting development because um, here the primary consumers of this are probably the funding agencies and science policy people who are trying to understand, you know, at a broader level the implications of public investment in research and innovation and things of that nature. Um, but it's another it's another part of the metadata that's spun out of the um, out of the publishing process at this point. Um, obviously, one of the hard parts of doing something like Fundref is that you need a um, standard vocabulary or taxonomy or identifier system or something uh, for funders so that you don't have people randomly abbreviating and um, uh, otherwise um, uh, specifying funders in highly variable ways. And um, the pilot project has got a starter set of um, 4,000 funding agencies, give or take, which um, is based off some work that um, Elsevier did a year or two ago and has been contributed to the project and they'll be building it out from there. Um, one thing I'm not entirely clear on is how consistent um, the uh, um, uh, the coverage is from nation to nation and region to region. I would imagine it's quite specific in the U.S. Um, and probably in parts of Europe. Um, it may be less detailed in some other parts of the globe. Obviously also, while there are a relatively finite number of government funders and even major not-for-profits. There are a very large number of corporate funders of research and there's clearly going to be some um, limit to the um, extent of coverage that they can offer. But I think all in all this is an extremely welcome development. Um, Another part of the discussion at this meeting went to um, trying to codify author roles. 
Um, right now, what you've got is you've got lists of authors um, that are attached to papers. It turns out, and I didn't understand this fully, that um, there are special properties assigned to people early in the sequence and at the end of the sequence. Um, uh, I always, I guess, was sort of led to believe that if you weren't doing this alphabetically, usually the lead author was the lead author. But apparently in some disciplines, the last author is special too. Um, and all of this is encoded carefully into the ordering that the authors appear in. Um, this is clearly really problematic when you are trying to do um, tenure and promotion assessments and read the secret messages in the author lists, um, particularly when they are in disciplines that are foreign to um, your own discipline. And most of these tenure um, committees are um, drawn from all over the um, institution. So that's one issue that um, there's some desire to sort out. Um, another related thing, and um, you've seen this probably in um, a number of uh, major journals in one form or another, but everybody's doing it differently. Um, an example would be the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, where um, if they've got four authors listed, you'll see a little note down after the abstract typically um, or towards the end of the paper which says which authors designed the experiment, which authors did the experiment, which authors wrote up the paper, which authors prepared the illustrations. The idea being that um, you may have authors in very different roles and it's desirable to clarify these roles. Um, in order to properly understand the um, different scholarly contributions that are represented in the article, and also, frankly, for accountability purposes. Um, it's getting very um, complicated to figure out um, who should be accountable when there are problems in an article. Um, especially um, when you've got these highly faceted uh, statements of responsibility. Um, we had some fascinating recounting at the meeting um, by various editors, too, about the problems with multiple authorship. People getting left off as authors who feel they ought to be on the list as authors, and also people finding themselves on the list of authors and nobody told them. And the various um, exercises that various um, journals are trying to go through to vet these lists and make sure that everybody's on the same page about them. Um, clearly here again, um, we have a situation where there is some interest in trying to codify or standardize these kinds of author contributions in various ways. And it's interesting to note that actually there are several different audiences for this that need rather different things. Um, there are, uh, for example, here tenure and promotion um, processes which are trying to understand the role that an author played in a multi-authored um, uh, effort. Um, 
Sometimes you want a lot more detail though, particularly when you're trying to identify collaborators and you're dealing with articles that maybe have um, 10 or 20 authors on them and maybe you're interested in the author that ran a very specific kind of experiment in a, in a complex, multidisciplinary, multi-method um, uh, kind of, um, of study. Maybe they um, they did the uh, you know mouse work um, in a uh, in, in something that was intended to understand um, protein and gene interactions, and they used some specific technique that um, you'd like to learn more about. Um, so there's a great range of um, of detail there and a lot of disagreement about what the right level of detail is. Um, other issues show up as well. Um, one very prominent one being data. Um, there is already, as many of you know, an effort to uh, move to data citation um, uh, that is sort of equivalent to um, standard citations of articles that you've built upon in your work. And here again, there's an opportunity to, repre to represent and recognize specifically roles of data acquisition, of providing data from that, that supports an experiment from another source, of data curation. Um, those could be roles that might be folded in here as well. Um, and then finally, um, we saw the emergence of um, sort of steadily growing um, lists of authors. Um, you know, when you, when you look at something with five authors or six authors, you have one scale of problem. It's now increasingly common to find articles, um, particularly um, in uh, biomedical areas where you may see a variety of techniques and experiments mustered together in order to gain insight into something, um, plus some fairly heavy um, uh, um, biostatistical analysis and things like that, um, you might see 30 authors. And here you begin to get into questions about do we include a recognition of um, organizational or administrative or leadership kinds of contributions there, such as sorting out all of the um, patient protocols with an IRB and dealing with all of the regulatory issues involved in a clinical trial, or simply operating a lab um, uh, with 20 or 30 people in it uh, working on the same general area that need to be coordinated carefully. And there is, of course, you know, a long-standing um, uh, practice in many fields of including the lab director as one of the uh, authors, frequently the last author in certain fields. But there's a question about whether it's appropriate to go a bit deeper than that. We also, of course, see the sort of abominations um, that, uh, you know, are the, the ultimate um, uh, in this. Um, things like the Large Hadron Collider, where they're talking seriously about um, papers authored by hundreds or even thousands of people, and um, the whole system begins to break down at some level. Uh, indeed, um, uh, everything from understanding accountability 
ability of that for that kind of a piece of work to understanding what all those people do really I found myself thinking maybe needs a whole new approach and trying to you know stuff it into the um, procustrian bed of uh, multiple authorship may not be the right approach um, in any event, a very provocative meeting and a meeting that I think, um, you know, surfaces a theme um, that's very appropriate as we think about how scholarly communication moves electronic and what the scientific article of the future looks like. We need to ask questions about what the metadata associated with the scientific article of the future looks like as well. And I think this opened up a very fruitful um, line of discussion here. Um, at this point, I'm going to um, uh, turn, the, um, turn the session over to Joan Lippincott, who is going to uh, talk about an event that took place recently in Calgary. Joan. Thanks, Cliff. Uh, Tom Hickerson, the Vice Provost and University Librarian at University of Calgary, and I organized a conference called Designing Libraries for the 21st Century, and it was held on the Calgary campus last week. The program was built around the Taylor Family Digital Library, an entirely new main library for the campus. And while many academic libraries are undergoing renovations and expansions, entirely new building projects for central libraries are definitely not typical. We featured the library and its technologies in a video of a session at a CNI meeting last year that's available on our website. The new building had a $13 million technology budget and includes a visualization studio, touch tables, micro-tile micro video displays, an ambitious digital signage program, and more. A digital media area encourages students and others to try out new equipment. And while the new facility was the centerpiece of the conference, there was a full program with speakers from all over the U.S. and Canada representing such topics as the planning process, interior design, the architect's perspective, Tom Hickerson's keynote on realizing the vision, and my talk on the teaching and learning aspects of library spaces. But I did want to highlight some of the themes that emerged um, in the day and a half of program sessions uh, with cl probably close to 30 speakers. There's a new emphasis on transparency, and I mean actual physical transparency. Many new areas um, with high-end equipment and software are being housed in specialized workspaces that have glass walls or are even out in the open so that people coming into the library can view what's going on and even participate in exploring new um, software and hardware and this can also promote peer learning. There were several examples given um, of how that uh, happened in these new facilities. Basically they're creating a place for experimentation in the library. In addition, special collections are often put f front and center in these places, and special collections both in the traditional print uh, and artifact sense, but also in the digital representation of special collections.
More instruction of all types is happening in libraries, and the spaces are being provisioned for both formal and informal spaces. At Calgary, I saw the first of the teal or uh, scale-up style classrooms um, implemented in a library. I know more are coming, but this was the first one I'd seen where they emphasize active problem-based learning around uh, round tables where groups work together and have displays around the walls where they can uh, feature the work of specific groups as an instructor roams uh, and works with the groups in their act of learning. There's more realization of the particular strength of 21st century libraries, and that is in assisting users in the convergence of content and technology. Also, um, one of the needs identified was to have more conversations and more uh, experiments with service provision and how that is configured, what types of staff, what kinds of models of service are needed in these facilities and with these technologies. In addition, we need to understand the future digital projects on campus that might be assisted by or find a home in a new or renovated facility. That's one of the things that the planners should be identifying as they scope out the uh, kinds of uh, technologies and services that will be in the new space. And they also need to think more broadly of the relationship of the library to the campus plan, the context of the academic life and how the library fits in, and this will vary from campus to campus. One of the overriding challenges that emerged is in embracing change in this rapidly evolving technology environment. In particular, it takes a culture change in the staff to keep up with the technology culture changes. At the Hunt Library, which is uh, under construction at the North Carolina State University in Raleigh, they're figuring out which new high-end technologies to include using these types of guidelines. First, technologies that need a physical space. Secondly, those connected to research and teaching. Third, those not readily available on campus, or at least not to a broad audience. And fourth, that are actually feasible to um, host and to service in a library facility. And I thought those were very interesting guidelines. A number of innovative libraries showcased multi-surface computing, including multiple monitors, wall screens with the use of laptops, etc. Definitely an emerging trend. But on the low end, everyone was in agreement that at least in libraries, desktop workstations or loan loanable laptops are not going away. There's still a huge demand for basic equipment in libraries, by, especially by students. What was unexpected? Many of the technologies at the high end are not plug and play, and a lot lies behind making these things useful. One of the things that I think needs further explore, exploration is for the medium-sized and smaller higher ed institutions, what's the minimum amount of staff and what type of staff are needed to bring some of this high end technology uh, onto campus?
Secondly, a number of people commented that there's no longer a meaningful boundary between AV and IT, and that creates organizational challenges. So those are some of the um, observations that I took away from the conference. The PowerPoint presentations will be made available on the University of Calgary website, and I'll post a message to CNI announce when they're available, which should be in a couple of weeks. Back to you, Cliff. Thanks, Joan. Um, there are so many interesting events going on. It's a shame that we can't all get to all of them, and uh, that one really sounds tremendously uh, fruitful. Um, I'm very struck by that um, statement about um, being unable to tell IT from AV anymore and the organizational um, and operational headaches that are emerging out of that, um, uh, that merger or convergence. Um, I think that there's really a lot to that. The last thing that I want to report on today is a meeting that took place Monday and Tuesday of this week, the uh, 20th and 21st, which at least um, potentially uh, is, uh, I think, hugely significant. This was um, the first organizational meeting um, to look at the development of an archival names authority infrastructure. Um, you may have read some of the coverage of this and related work that Jennifer Howard has been writing for the Chronicle of Higher Education um, in the last couple of weeks. Um, she was at the meeting and did do some reporting from the meeting as well as a um, uh, more extensive piece a week or so ago um, on the broader project. Um, this work is being led by Dan Pitty from the uh, University of Virginia, um, uh, from IATH there, the Institute um, for um, uh, Technology and the Humanities. And um, his collaborators include um, uh, Ray Larson at the University of California, Berkeley's iSchool, and others. Um, really the kind of fundamental idea here is that um, as we develop archival finding aids, um, uh, there's a lot of name authority work that needs to be done. Um, this is partially covered by the work that um, libraries have historically done in name authority, but there are many, many other names that um, don't necessarily appear in those authority files, which um, also particularly have a uh, tradition from the library side as being focused on monographs rather than, for example, journal articles or um, movies or other so sorts of things. Um, also, the needs of the archivist and the scholar broadly are a bit different than the needs of the librarian. Librarians um, uh, really typically carry variant forms of the names um, in their files. So, for example, if someone wrote under both a um, maiden and a married name or something like that, or, um, uh, for example, was 
Russian and had their name transliterated in several different ways in English editions um, that were published in translation, they would keep those variant versions of the name. Um, we'll leave aside for another time discussions about pseudonyms, anonymity, and other edge cases. But primarily what they're trying to do is to bring the works of the same person together and they also sometimes they also carry information to disambiguate to people who publish under the same name most commonly birth and death dates maybe they'll throw in a um, place of birth or something like that if they have to. But the general rule is um, what they want is the bibliographic sourcing of the names, um, you know, what, what books there were, and the names themselves. They don't want a biography. For people who want to build documentary editions, for people who want to build finding aids, um, for people who want to do uh, prosopological uh, work, um, you want biographies. And by here I mean, you know, very much capsule biographies, um, uh, the sort of brute facts, um, you know, where, what did they publish, what offices or appointments did they hold, um, you know, what grants did they get, um, did they serve in, um, you know, political office, things like that, not a, not the sort of examination of character and, um, you know, mental state that a, um, you know, in-depth modern biography would do, but rather um, uh, the sort of, you know, genealogical and factual data that would characterize an entry in a dictionary of national biography or who's who in America or something like that. Um, so we need a place to put these and we also need to cluster them together out of all the resources we have. There's a project called SNAC, Social Networks um, and Archival Context, um, which has been running um, uh, to try and do that, and it's now going to move up to a much higher level. What it does is harvests up authority files, finding aids, um, and other kinds of material, and um, that will include, I think, some biographical um, dictionaries at, over time and other sources, and um, clusters together material on the same people through that. Um, there's also a need to pick up um, uh, new intellectual work that people do either in assign creating new names or in um, disambiguating or clustering um, names that need to be brought together or um, separated just as there is in the maintenance on authority files. And this meeting was the first step in looking at how we build that infrastructure who are the stakeholders, um, how might it evolve. Um, I think it's tremendously powerful because it has, it offers the opportunity to really make it much easier to find scattered um, uh, works pertaining to an individual uh, that may be in a wide range of archives. Um, it begins to really build a bridge between published works and the kind of unpublished material that archives specialize in. Um, it promises perhaps to be a place to capture some of the 
codified knowledge that is built up as a byproduct of producing documentary editions, uh, formal biographies and things like that, and today just sort of goes to die when the project is over. Um, I also believe, although this is not an area we explored at length in this meeting, uh, but um, you know, I know we will all return to, uh, that there is a much greater continuity between um, the work that's going on now in scholarly identity of living active researchers of various kinds on one side and these sorts of archival name and biography resources on the other. Um, the ultimate vision, I think, has got to be um, one of a relatively smooth um, linkage and migration across those two. And um, I think that is absolutely a game-changing uh, prospect. So I was really excited to be able to go and participate in this meeting and to help um, uh, help move the thinking along in this area. Um, this is a place, that, this is an area that's very closely tied to CNI's work and thinking about scholarly identity and um, we will certainly be working um, hard to help this uh, project uh, move along and gain traction over time. Uh, but um, at least from my perspective, this is really one to watch and one to be starting to think about um, your organization or institution's involvement with over time. So that concludes um, uh, our observations over the last uh, week or two. Um, as I say, it's been a busy time. I hope that um, you found these um, uh, ruminations helpful and thank you for joining us.